I'm only human, you're only human. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, we've been talking about how we're complex people who have been shaped by complex forces that flow into our lives, and we know it. It's why you speak the language of your parents. I mean, there's a lot of people around the world who speak Chinese, why don't you? Because you were influenced by somebody who was near you. And you know that it's not just language, it's other things that have flowed into your life, and it's why we sometimes hear the same sentiment in that song from our own mouths. Don't put the blame on me. I can't be responsible for this. I'm being shaped by all these outside forces. I, I can't be the one who's responsible. It's, it's got to be these other things. And so for the last few weeks, we've been trying to figure out how we deal with these forces that flow into our lives. This morning, we're going to look at um, a hotly debated topic. I didn't know it was until I started introducing it to people, and I was surprised at how strong the opinions were. Simple question, what do you think influences people's lives more, nature or nurture? Nature, like genetics and biology. Let's use an example. Uh, they've now found that on the uh, genome of humans, they'll find certain markers that indicate that you could have a high propensity for alcoholism. And they would even go so far as to say, listen, if this is in your family, you should be careful because there's some indication that it could get passed down. Or is it nurture, environment experience? And you would say, listen, it doesn't really matter what your genes are. If you put yourself in experiences or in environments where you're exposing yourself to that kind of stuff, you could become an alcoholic, nature or nurture. Um, this morning, we're gonna ask you to get on the record. Okay, so we're gonna bring the lights up. And um, you're going to have to do this real quick because there's a lot of people at your tables right now or in your row. But here's, I want you to go on the record and do this. What do you think influences people more, nature or nurture? If you're, if you're sitting by yourself, like join up with another table or if you're in a row by yourself, cram together or something. But here's somebody's opinion, nature or nurture, which do you think it is? What has more influence? Okay, get those opinions out there. Go quickly. Okay, now, I'm gonna help settle the debate. I know that's never gonna happen, but here's what we're gonna do. In 2015, a study was done that took 50 years of studies from genetic twins. They knew the people had the same genes and they studied outcomes and they weren't, this was an extensive study. 17,804 different traits were examined. So everything medical that you can think of, occupation, um, you name it, they're looking at it. And they were trying to answer just one question. What has more influence, nature or nurture? And they came away with some really great information and I'm gonna quiz you on it right now, okay? Um, so uh, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask you to have a discussion at your table and rate the percentage that you think is nurture or nature or nurture. And you're gonna start with health-related issues. There's a little piece of paper in the middle of your table. It's got a little H there. 
and then two columns with percentages. Write in health. So it's health-related stuff. How much health-related stuff is attributed to nature or nurture? Try to agree as a table and put down some percentages. Go ahead. Okay, they found in this study that there were several things that were real, I mean, extremes, influenced by one or the other in significant ways. We're going to put some of those up and see if you can guess how widely or which one was influencing the most. The first one is bipolar. Bipolar was strongly influenced by one of these or the other. Which one do you think it is, and then what percentage do you think that is? Do you think it's more nature? Do you think it's more nurture? What's the percentage? All right, let's do the next one. Eating disorders. They found eating disorders were heavily influenced by one or the other. Which one do you think was the heavier influence and at what percentage? Okay, the last one. The social values that a person held were influenced by one of these versus the other. What do you think the percentage was? Which do you think influenced more? The social values that somebody would hold. Okay, now you have your opinion, you have the opinion of the table, let's find out what the study said. But first, let's find out what you said. When it came to health-related stuff, what did you guys put as percentages? Some brave table, yell out. 70-30, 70, 30. 70 nature, 30 nurture. And 60-40. 45 45-55. Boom. I know. Shocking, right? All right. Now, we know bipolar is not going to be this close because I told you it was lopsided one way or the other. How many guesses, any guesses on bipolar? 75-25 is pretty close. It's 70-30. Anybody have that? You guys nailed it. All right. Okay. Eating disorders, what'd you guys think? 60 40. 60 40, nature 60? 30 70. 30 70? Close, they found it was 40 60. Like the messages that you heard 
things that had happened to you, experiences that influenced that eating disorder. And the last one, your social values, social issues I wrote down, but social values. What'd you think? 1585? 1090? Here's, here's what they found. Probably will surprise you. Now, you might think, oh, that doesn't seem like it's wide enough. I'm just telling you, that's a huge disparity. That, that's, that's off the chart. And here's what they found between nature and nurture. Yeah, you can take the lights back down. What they found is that it basically was a 50-50 wash when you lumped them all. When you lumped 17,804 traits together, it was about 50-50. It's not that those things don't have some influence in your life. It's just that one doesn't overpower the other, except I'd like to submit to you this morning that there is one that overpowers both of those, leaves them in the dust. And I want to take you to the scriptures that I think um, actually uh, introduce the idea of nature and nurture. And there's an element of that there, but something bigger is going on. Something more important is happening that I think we should know about and be thinking about. I want to take you to a time in Israel's history that was unique. God had just decided that he was going to pull a king of Israel out of common people. He had done this once with King Saul. King Saul had disobeyed him, and God was ready to leave that family behind. And he said, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to send my prophet Samuel. He's going to go to a town. He's going to ask for a certain family. And I'm going to tell him as they walk the sons in front of him, which son will be king. And so Samuel goes out. He enters the town says, I want you to get Jesse. That's who God told me um, whose family I should be picking from. I want Jesse and his sons to come to a sacrifice. I want you to walk them in front of me, and I'm going to start. I'm going to pick based on how God moves me to say, oh, this is the one. So here we go. So um, we find this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And, and the first son walks in front of Samuel, and, and he looks good. And something happens. In um, verse 7, it says this. This is God speaking to Samuel about his choice. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This was a good-looking, tall guy. And at first blush, Samuel was like, oh, winner. We got, he's going to be awesome. And God was like, no, 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 no. I, I don't want you to look at his outward appearance it's the wrong measure. In fact, he says, I've rejected him. Bring in the next son. There's six more. No. 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 The last one's left. He's got to be like, <laughs> I'm king, right? King of the world, I win. And he walks out. And God says to Samuel, no. And, I mean, you can just picture the whole thing. Like, Samuel's looking down the runway. Where's the next kid? And Jesse's like, You're, I'm out. Which leads Samuel to ask a question because he's really confused. God had told him he would go there, that he would pick a son from this family. And, and he's seen them all, he thinks. So in verse 11, he asks this question. Are, all, are these all the sons that you have? Is this it? And Jesse answers him, and I, I hear in his answer a tone of, do you sure you know what you're talking about, Samuel? Because he says this to him. He says, 
there is still the youngest, right? And he's tending the sheep. Like, he shouldn't be on your radar here. Because listen, if we're talking about nature and nurture having equal parts of making you into who you are, then all of these boys, including the one who's out in the field still, the youngest, who's shepherding, they came from the same dad. They have the same genes. They were raised by the same family. I guarantee all those other guys took turns in the field too. Because that's how the family would have done it. You were the youngest, you would have been out watching the sheep. So they all had the same experience. And if you were going on just nature and nurture at that point, you'd have to pick out of those first seven guys because they had stature, they had maturity. This, this other dude is so young that nobody, it never even crossed anybody's mind that he should be brought in for something like this. But Samuel says, listen, I'll wait. Go get him. Now, we have, I mean, honestly, we have no idea how long that could have taken. If he was nearby a few hours, they took these sheep into the wilderness all over the place. This could have taken days. We don't know. But he waits. And the question is, why? What was God looking for? And we're given clues we're given clues in 1 Samuel 16. In the same verse where he says, I'm not looking at the outward appearance, he says what he is looking for. This is the, the bottom of verse 7. He says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart, which is kind of great because um, there's a very famous proverb that talks about just how vital your heart is um, this is quoted often. Um, it's Proverbs 4.23. It's from a wisdom book. And it says this. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. See, we think nature or nurture. And we're aware of those forces that flow into our lives from nature or nurture. And we sometimes have our guard up against those. But, but I don't think that we have the kinds of guards up for the stuff that flows into our hearts. We're not watching what's happening there. We're watching a lot of the external stuff that goes on. And, and it's a mistake. Because the stuff that flows into your heart and shapes you at the core of who you are has the most influence on your life out of anything else that you'll come across. It's number one. In fact, um, we get a sense that David, this young shepherd, has a heart that's different than his brothers, and it's why they were all disqualified. There was something in their hearts that didn't make them kingly, and there was something in this young boy's heart that made him a king. Um, we get this indication that this is exactly what God was looking for back in 1 Samuel 13. We're, we're not told um, the name of David all the way up until he's like anointed. I mean, he walks in, he's like, oh, this is the guy. In 1 Samuel 16, David's not mentioned. In 1 Samuel 13, David's not mentioned. In fact, this idea comes up that it's, it's about the heart because um, 
the prophet goes to Saul to tell him he's going to be removed from king. And God reveals what he's looking for instead. This is in 1 Samuel 13, 14. It says, this is Samuel talking to Saul, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out, he went looking for a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of the people. God was looking for somebody who had a heart for God. He went looking for somebody who had a heart for God. And he found it in David. Now listen, you have to understand, he found this young kid. Uh, when David gets anointed, it was 15 plus years before he would become king. He was 15 or younger when he was found. And, um, and people have had a lot of problem with this little phrase that God was looking for a man after his own heart and found it in David because they look at the adult life of David and they look at what he did. David was involved in a lot of wars, killed a lot of people. Uh, David committed adultery, then murdered somebody to cover it up. And people have asked, how can that be the heart of somebody that God wants to find? Because apparently, God's not looking for somebody who's perfect. But he is looking for somebody that has something going on at the core of who they are that he could work with that makes us unique and different when you have this that's different from those of us who don't have it. What is that? I mean, that's the question that comes to my mind. If God went looking for that and found it in this young kid, and God knew the whole story, right? God, the whole story wasn't blind to God. He knew David was going to have these problems in his adult life, but still felt this was worth pursuing, that he was king material. Well, what do we do with that? Well, I think we dig into David's life, and what's really helpful is that there's a lot of stories in the scripture about David, and even more helpful, David wrote a lot of scriptures himself. He wrote Psalms, and in those Psalms, we actually um, find David talking about what was going on in his heart. So I want to take you there because if we can discover some of the stuff that was happening with him, maybe it could be helpful for us as we figure out how to shape our hearts as well. Psalm 28, Psalm written by David in verse 7, he says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. David is talking about understanding that he was in the presence of God often, and it shaped the way he lived. Listen, in your heart, you store what you believe. You store what you are passionate about. You store what you think about God. You store your reactions to God. David had all of that at the core of who he was. And because he was in the presence of God, he had come to understand that what he knew God was in here was that he was a shield and a strength. It's why the scriptures record as a young boy, there were predators that would come in and try to steal the sheep, and David would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe against them. Why? Why would, he, why would he risk himself like that? Because he had this belief that he had strength and shield with him, and it grew a trust in him. It's why he would step 
into a, a battlefield with Goliath without any armor because he had this belief that God was his strength and shield. You would see this in his life. And so he had practiced understanding that the presence of God had shaped who he was and he held certain beliefs because of it. Can you understand that it really wouldn't matter how you were raised or what genetic material you had in your life if you had a strong belief that God was your strength and shield, that he produced joy in your life, didn't matter what circumstances you found yourself in, don't you understand that that could change the way you lived? It could shape it. That's what it was doing for David. Find in Psalm 51, David writes this in verse 16. He's talking to God. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, which is really odd to say because the whole religious system of David's day was set up based on burnt offerings and sacrifices. Except David understood that those burnt offerings and sacrifices were supposed to represent something bigger, something more important. David knew that and he calls it out. He, this is what he writes in verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. It's a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. At the beginning of this chapter 51, there's some notes at the top. The notes at the top indicate that David wrote this after he had been confronted for adultery and murder by Nathan the prophet. And David's response could have easily been, fine, Tell me what sacrifices I have to go and do. I'll sacrifice stuff and I'll get it done. But David understood that it was more than that that was required. That genuine and deep sorrow had to be felt at the core of who he was because he had not honored God. And his sacrifice was saying, I will humble myself before you. I will have a broken spirit, a humble spirit in your sight. You see this in David's life. You see this by him accepting this role of the shepherd and seeming to lean into it and do really well there. You see this in this confrontation with Nathan where instead of getting all wound up and saying, I deserve this, he said, I was wrong. The heartfelt regret. You see this when God says to David, there is so much blood on your hands, you will not build the temple for me. And David could have easily said, look at all I've done. Look at everything that I've done in your name. I have the right, I deserve to be able to build a temple. But he didn't. He humbly accepted his role and said, I'll do this. There was a sense of humility in the heart of David. And it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered if it was nature or nurture that was shaping him. If he had a heart of humility towards God, can you understand how that would have overpowered all of that stuff? Psalm 63, the notes at the top of this psalm say this. It's a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. That's going to be important in just a minute. In verse 1, he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. When you, when you see that whole being 
Think heart, think everything that I am. I long for God. The thing that was in David's heart was he wanted to know God. Here's what we know. He wrote this in the desert of Judah, right? He spent a lot of time there running from Saul for his life. And there are other Psalms that record God pleading, or um, David pleading to God for protection, but here he reveals what was going on in his heart. What he really desired wasn't protection and safety, it was to know God. It was, to, it was to be connected to God deeply. And so he has this yearning for him to know who God is. Can you understand that it really wouldn't matter what genetic material you have? It wouldn't matter what environment that you were raised in. If what you held at the core of your heart was a desire to deeply know and love God, that it could shape the rest of your life. This is what David knew. And I, and I started wondering, okay, um, David had these pieces in his heart, like this, these things that he believed, these passions that he held, these things that he reacted to God. How did he develop that at such a young age? Because he was found at a young age. And I think the desert had a lot to do with it. I think he spent a lot of time in a real desert and in a proverbial desert in his life. And, and I, think, I think when you go into a desert, you, you know what I'm talking about, where you walk into a place and you just feel like you're alone. You feel like you're up a creek, no paddle. You're not sure how things are gonna turn out. It's definitely not going the way you want it to go. One of those kind of places, what, what I've learned about the desert is the desert does a couple things. It, it reveals what's going on in your heart so that you can, you can actually do something about what you find there. And the desert also gives you a chance to work on some stuff because God has your attention in the desert. And I think because David spent so many years, his first 30 years, in those desert wilderness experiences, he was, he was working on seeing what was revealed in his heart and he was growing stuff because God has his attention there. And here's what happened. I love this. This is really important. I want you to see this. This is in 2 Chronicles 16. This is how God operates when it comes to you and your heart. Chronicles 16.9 says this. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God found David because he was looking and he found a heart that was worth supporting. Do you know why your heart is so important? Because out of it flows everything and also it could be the very thing that calls God to support you, not to remove you from the desert, but to give you that strength to keep moving, to give you that courage to stand in front of a Goliath, to give you that strength that you needed at the time. God's eyes roam looking for this thing in us that makes a difference. And we're focused on these nature and nurture things that flow into our lives. And we've missed that you can actually grow your heart. And we've missed just how important it is. I, I know it's important from personal experience. Some of you know my story. Some of you won't. I grew up on a Christian youth camp. 
It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, very difficult thing, too. Like, it had the best and worst of my life there. But I had a lot of advantages. I grew up with a dad um, who was in full-time Christian ministry. He was there for about 17, 18 years. He was over 20 years at another place. Um, if, if there was genetic stuff in the makeup, I, I would have gotten that for my dad. But I, I grew up in an environment where I had a lot of advantages. I, I heard scriptural teaching during the summers over 10 weeks that most people wouldn't hear in a year and a half. I started working at age nine. I worked half a days at age nine, full days at age 12. I, was, I got a work ethic because of that environment that I'm really grateful for. So many things shaped my life. And I, and I can remember as a teen coming to a conclusion that God had kind of moved my heart and had wanted me to be in ministry as well. And I went off to college to get some training so that I could be a missionary, but I had a caveat. I said, God, I'd like to do this, but I want to do it my way because I've been in ministry with my parents. I've seen some stuff that I don't care for, and I don't want to do that. So I'll, I'll do ministry, but it's going to be my way. I went through four years of college still thinking that this is what I would do. I would be in ministry someday. And when I got to a place where I was looking at the kind of roles that I could take, None of the mission organizations would consider doing what I wanted to do. And so I said, no way, I'm not doing it. It's my way or the highway. And the highway, for me, lasted for about 10 years. Um, I've been told I'm stubborn. I don't like to think of it that way. I like to think of it as persistent determination in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> That, that's what I did. There was a, I was involved in churches. I knew there was something in me that, that loved that sort of stuff. But I would not, I would not yield to God. Nature and nurture, I had going for me. I had all the advantages. But I withheld my heart from God. And it cost 10 years of waiting for me to get to a place where I finally said, Okay, God, I'll do it your way. I, I, I mean, I'm not happy about it, but I'll do it your way. And in less than a year later, I was working in a church that I didn't apply for the job for. God had this desire to move me in a direction, and if he would have had my heart, he would have done it sooner. But I, I just want, I want you to know that because if you're not careful, you'll look at all these forces that flow into your life and you're going to think that they're actually the thing that shapes you. And you're going you're to be tempted to say, don't put the blame on me. I'm getting messed up by all these things that flow into my life. When the reality is, your heart has a bigger play in how you'll live than anything else. And you get to choose how that will be shaped. Because it's about what you believe. It's about the passions that you hold. It's about what you think about God. It's about how you react to God. And when you can examine what's going on in your life, you can get some insight as to what you need to get focused on so that your heart can be fully committed to him. 
Because if it is, God's looking for that very thing to come and support and to move along with purpose. What's going on in your heart this morning? Have you been feeling like, don't put the blame on me, this is the best I can do. Have you missed that your heart plays a key role and out of it everything else flows? God, as we sit quietly, I ask that your spirit would uh, be here. We know the scriptures tell us that your eyes move through and around the whole world in this auditorium right now. But you're looking at our hearts. And God, I ask that you would do that right now. That you would be tapping on some hearts of some people that have looked at the external things in their life and they've kind of written their own responsibility off. But now they've realized I can, I can take this back. I'm responsible for what I believe. I'm responsible for how I think about God. I'm responsible for how I react about God. God, I ask that you would find in our hearts the stuff that's getting in the way of us being fully committed to you. Nobody else can see it. I mean, we put on a great show, and, and you don't care. You care about what's going on in our hearts. So I ask that you would pick away at that. Help us to be honest about what's really happening where nobody else can see. Give us the courage to start reshaping. God, I don't know, there may be people who are in a desert right now. Maybe they're about to be. They don't know it. Maybe they just came out of one. God, I ask you would take that moment in their lives and help them get clear. Allow them to see what it reveals so that they can take a step toward that and begin to grow a heart that is fully committed to you. God, we love you. Help us face what goes on deep inside. In Jesus' name, amen.